0: to come into your, into your presence, to be in the presence of our Lord and our Savior before the throne of grace. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours through the sacrifice of Jesus, for the hope, the joy, and the peace that we can know as we lay down our burdens and we cast our cares on you. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning when you came in, the, something unusual, right? These are not normal for us at OCC to have name tags on. Uh, there's a reason why we're doing that. So we're in the beginning of a brand new five-week series called For Such a Time as This. And one of the things that is really uh, that we feel is really important as leaders in the church is the idea of reconnecting, right? We've been disconnected by all the things that have happened. And and so we want to try to focus a little bit of our attention and time on reconnecting with each other. And, and I have a homework assignment for you at the end of this message today that's going to involve the next activity. So we've not done this since COVID, COVID broke out, and I'm not going to ask you to shake hands with anybody. Don't worry about that. You can just do this one thing for me. I'm going to give you three minutes, and I want you to stay kind of where you are. Just I want you to make note and talk to the people, introduce yourself to the people behind you, in front of you, and beside you. And if you're on the outside, then kind of figure out who that is for you. And just do this, make sure no one in this room uh, is able to leave today and say, no one talk to me, all right? We're all going to talk to each other. You have three minutes. We'll resume at 9.35. Stand up. Go. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even supposed to yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's start start making our way back to our seats. Well, you've missed that, haven't you? That's been a long time. The, the, the buzz in the room was exciting this morning. Welcome back to a series, a brand new series for the next five weeks, called For Such a Time as This. And and this is a it, it's a it's a message that's really coming from your pastor's heart. And so in many ways, this is a uh, a pastor's message to the congregation and to this church family that's, that's on my heart, but not just mine. We've been talking about this for weeks in our elders' meetings with our staff, and um, we feel like it's, it's an important message for this time, this place, the space that we're in today right here. I want to talk to you as we begin this series, and I want you to think about something for a second. I, I've always been fascinated by the lengths that we will go to uh, sometimes to save something that's important to us. Have you ever seen uh, those uh, video clips when we have the whales that get trapped in the sea ice and there are brave volunteers that cut holes in the ice so that the whales will be able to breathe to get back out to sea safely from under the ice? They'll do a lot of things to save an animal. Beyond that, of course, there are, are the things that that we might do to save people. I, I've always loved that story uh, about Balto and Togo, the the sled dogs that, that made that incredible 800-mile run uh, to save the children of Nome, Alaska in 1925 when diphtheria had broken out. And uh, the incredible story, right, when airplanes couldn't fly and boats couldn't get there and there was no transportation they, they had to make do to save the children's lives. And they Went to extraordinary levels of effort and sacrifice to save those children. More recently, in our own time, you'll remember that in 2010 we had those 33 miners that got trapped in Chile and, and all that, that happened literally moving earth and drilling a shaft down into the earth to save those 33 men. And even more recent than that, in 2018, the story over uh, that we had of the, uh, the uh, uh, Tamlong. Cave rescue where 13 footballers got trapped inside of a cave because of an unexpected rainstorm that flooded it while they were in there. Great efforts were made to save people who were in danger or who were sick. And I want you to understand something about the time that we're living in right now today. You see, our world is sick. And I'm not just talking today about the scourge that is COVID, although I can tell you after having had the disease not once but twice now, it's a real thing. <laughs> and it really is a scourge, as we know, and it's, it's had real problems in the world. But, but as bad as that is, that's not the sickness I'm talking about this morning. See, there is a sickness in the world that only God can cure. That only God can solve. And I want you to understand something. God has called on you and on me to be rescuers. I mean, we are like uh, those people that made that, those heroic efforts to save the children in Nome, Alaska. And we are like the workers who risk their lives to go into a cave flooded with water. We are the stretcher bearers. We are the ones that are called upon to go into the world. Me, you, ordinary people that recognize the moment we're in calls for a heroic effort. Jesus wanted those people almost 2,000 years ago to understand they were in such a moment. He wanted them to understand the sickness that plagues humanity, that's that's plagued it since sin entered the world. And he wanted them to understand that the way that people go about living life, for the most part, is not the way that God would have us to live. In other words, what the crowd does most of the time is wrong. What's right? In fact, Jesus said it this way. Uh, he, he wanted people to understand that the worldly order is very different than the heavenly order, that what God has in mind is different. And that's why Jesus made a, little, a, a very important point early in his ministry, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to challenge how they thought about things. Remember these passages, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard this is the way to do it, but I tell you this, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say don't. Call someone a fool. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't lust in your heart. Uh, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus was really speaking about the way that humanity engages each other, right? I mean, there's the evil realm. This exists in the sickness of our world. There are people who will repay your goodness or kindness with evil, (laughs) You can be minding your own business, even doing something good and find yourself set upon by someone with evil intent. They will repay your goodness with evil. Jesus understood that that happens in the world. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. What happens most of the time is the second, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. The idea of that statement is, if you're good to me, I'll be good to you. And if you're cruel or evil to me, well, I won't be so good to you. <laughs> and maybe I'll even return your cruelty. That's how the world kind of works. But Jesus said, I want you to know something. There's a different way of being, a different way of living. And so Jesus says, I tell you, if your brother uh asks you to carry his pack one mile, carry it also two. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other as well. In fact, Jesus, this is mind-blowing, he says, do not resist an evil person. If someone does evil for you, don't repay it with evil, but repay it with good. Now, if Jesus just said that, it might be easy for us to dismiss it. I'm not trying to be disrespectful of Jesus, but We all know this is true. It's a lot easier to say things than it is to do things. (laughs) Maybe you've done that before. I still have some projects I've said I would get to that I've yet to ever actually do. Maybe you could relate. But Jesus didn't just say, repay evil with kindness. He modeled it, remember, at the cross. As they nailed him to the wood, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. (laughs) They don't know what they're doing. He modeled the kingdom principle, that God has a different way of doing things, that God wants something different. There are some priorities that will be a part of our time together as we think about for such a time as this. Things that really need to be in the forefront of what we're going to do as Christians in this hour and in this moment. For it's a desperate moment and a desperate hour. And it's imperative for us to do this one thing well. <laughs> Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. This is a, a priority. Priority. And I recognize with all the things that have been happening, as Zach shared so beautifully in our meditation this morning, it's been easy for us to lose focus. So I'm here to call us all back, including myself, and say, you know what? Uh, Just as Jesus said when he was 12 years old, he said to his parents when he had stayed behind at the temple, didn't you know I have to be my father's business? Jesus said, I'm going to seek first what God wants. And if a child could understand that, we certainly can understand it in this room. We have to seek first the kingdom of God. So what's God's kingdom like? Let's, let's review just three things that God is about. Right? First of all, we know from the account in Genesis, we shared this a few weeks ago in a series, right? he is the author of light. God is light. Even when the sun is melted away into nothingness, there will still be light. The Bible says in Revelation, there's no need for a sun or for a lamp because God is present. He is a light that will light the darkness. There are no shadows in heaven. God's light is everywhere. He brings things to light. This is what God does. Jesus said, because of the light, people don't have to stumble in the darkness. If we're going to seek first this kingdom, we want to be light bearers that are helping to make sure people don't fall into the traps of darkness. The second thing that he brings is this is a kingdom of life. God is the author of life. He's the one who breathes life uh, into the dirt to create man. He's the one who can breathe life into the valley of dry bones and bring them back to life again. It is a kingdom of life. And I want you to get this. We are a culture and a society that in many ways is obsessed with death. In fact, we oftentimes think it's, it's great fun uh, to go out and to, to drink a kind of poison into our body uh, that we wake up the next morning feeling terrible from. But, but that's the culture we live in. We've actually come to a place where we think that destruction and, and we think that things that can harm us are good. That's upside down. Jesus is about life, affirming life, loving life, being with present with the people. In fact, he is the ultimate source of light, the ultimate source of life. And I want you to get this last one. He is the ultimate source of love. Love doesn't come first from a person. It comes from God. It's because he has first loved us that we are able to love others. So he says, seek first my kingdom. My kingdom is the kingdom of light. It's a kingdom of life, of light, of life, and of love. It's also a kingdom of forgiveness. And in, in that same sermon in Matthew five, six, and seven, Jesus went on to say, "If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you." His is a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. It's an incredible gift. We understand that forgiveness frees us and it frees others. Forgiveness must be one of our priorities if we are seeking first the kingdom of God. Too often the church has been quick to condemn, but I want to understand that Jesus was quick to forgive. There's a last thing I want to say before we kind of get into the real heart of the sermon to introduce this new series. And that is that This kingdom that we're seeking first, in this time, in this moment, is a kingdom that is marked by sacrifice. It's not about what I can get. It's much more about what we can give. This was what Jesus modeled, and I want you to understand that life is really not about what we get. In fact, the joy of life doesn't come in getting more things the joy in life comes from giving of ourselves to others and to God. This is why Jesus would say, What's well, a profit of man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? It's not about what we get, it's an upside down kind of kingdom. Well, we'll fill in some gaps over the next five weeks, but I want to set the stage for why it's important for us to. To be about our Father's business and this moment, as we have been called to this time in this place, because you see, this is the reality. So, the church at Oakville has had this—we've had this rem- meteor, this meteor-like rise that we enjoyed for twenty-plus years. Like all churches, COVID came and it, it's had its moments. And we see empty seats. We we recognize what's happened in this in this circumstance. And I know there are some who are discouraged by. By what's going on, let me encourage you. You are the ones God's called for this time and this place. You're here. Your presence is not an accident. And we all have something to offer. Whether we are 10, we are 60, we are 80, or somewhere in the middle of all that. God's not finished with us. God still has a lot to do through us. So where do we begin? Well, today, I want us to center our thoughts around what I think is the place that all great movements have begun, with prayer. Prayer is the key that unlocks everything that God will do in us, through us, And for us. Prayer. And as we think about this this morning, I want us to to understand something. Have you ever noticed this? That that when we're facing a crisis, we pray a lot more than we do when things are going well. (laughs) Have you noticed that? At least that's true for me sometimes. When a circumstance of life makes it clear that we're not in control, oftentimes Christians are quick to realize that uh, God's wisdom, comfort, and guidance are our greatest needs. When we come face to face with disaster, all of our questions about when to pray or, or what to say, they kind of dissolve away into a passionate plea for escape, for relief, for deliverance. The challenge that we face, of course, is when the crisis passes, when the tragedy has resolved, we often feel somehow that we're more in control of our life. And sadly, we typically miscalculate our need for fervent prayer. We pray with less urgency. We pray less often. We pray with less honest passion. Jesus observed that that people pray for different reasons and there are different things behind our prayers He shows us a picture of two people who are approaching prayer from very wide and different angles. If you have your Bibles or your phone or on the screen, follow along as we look at Luke chapter 18 for a few moments together. In Luke chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus says there were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader, respected in the community, beloved by many, uh, admired people people wanted to be like the Pharisees uh, that was what you would aspire to be in their culture And they're other, a tax collector, perhaps not even a Jew, perhaps an outsider, uh, someone at least who they didn't care for. Most tax collectors had been disfellowshipped from their synagogues. They were not allowed to worship, and we've shared before that if you couldn't be a part of the local synagogue, it was, in essence, uh, like being uh, uh, branded, in a sense, because a synagogue is where all of social life occurred. It was a place that you discussed your plans for what's going to happen next, and And to be on the outside of that, well, it was was devastating. So Jesus says we have someone, the ultimate insider who everyone wants to have around, and the ultimate outsider who no one cares about and no one likes. That's who comes to pray. Now the Pharisee, the one everyone aspired to be like, stood by himself, and he prayed, Jesus said. And Jesus tells us his prayer. This is just a telling moment. Jesus knows what you pray. He knows how you pray. He's listening to your prayers. He tells the story because he's lived the story. He's seen it. Jesus says the Pharisee stood up and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) I'm not like a robber or an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer or I'm not even like this tax collector. And and apparently he points this out to God, like, you see that sinner over there? I'm nothing like him, God. And then to prove himself to God, he prays, you know, I fast twice a week and, and I give a tenth of all I get. Jesus took note of that prayer. The tax collector in the story, the despised one, the hated one, also stood at a distance to pray. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Now, Jesus makes a judgment about the two individuals and their hearts and their lives and their status with God. He says, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So I ask you, which of these men do you think prayed with more sincerity? Uh, That's a hard question because I think the Pharisee was pretty sincere. That's who he really was. And the tax collector was sincere as well. <laughs> These were probably both honest prayers. One, a man who's conceited. The other, a man who's incredibly humble. Both of whom walk into the space. One thinking he's perfectly right with God. And the other acknowledging he is a long way from the person he needs to be. I could ask which prayed with more transparency. But again, their prayers revealed a lot about who they were for both. I could ask about the functionality of the prayers, which one functioned properly, and maybe to the person, they were both effective. The sinner wanted to acknowledge his sin before God, and the righteous person wanted everyone around him to see he was the right, and even God, to see, hey, I'm the right kind of person. No, probably the thing that was most important in these prayers was the relational aspect. It's how is God relating to a person? How's a person relating to God? One understood his desperation and one did not. The problem is we're all like the tax collector. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our plea is his desperate plea. And when our prayer becomes much more like the other, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm better than so-and-so, that's an indication that something needs to change in us. Now, there's another way we use prayer. (laughs) It's not a bad thing. But I want you to know that prayer is more than just this thing. You see, a lot of times we use prayer like our emergency response system. Have you heard the tone on TV comes on? This is only a test. Well, we go through crisis and sometimes we think that God is our emergency response system. Hey, whoa, God, got a problem here. Fix that for me real quick, will you? It's not all bad. The Bible really talks to us like a father and son or father-daughter relationship that we can ask our dad for help. That's a good thing, so I'm not making fun of that. But I want you to hear this, prayer is more than just that. It's more than just saying, God, I need you to help me today with this or that. Prayer is so much more than that. Prayer is a part of a relationship with God. And Paul tells us that of these prayers and this prayer, that prayer mustn't just be a, a thing that we do when it suits us. But prayer is an all-day, all-consuming way of life. Consider this. Why would Paul write to the Thessalonians, pray continually in 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Or to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful, be thankful. To the church in Ephesus, Paul writes in Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray, pray, pray. You see, prayer changes everything. It's because of prayer that, that prison bars swing open. It was because of prayer that, that the ground beneath the church's feet shook Uh, It's because of prayer that demons, Jesus said, could be cast out. Remember, some are only able to go out with much prayer and fasting. Prayer changes things. So I call us into a season of earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. Not just asking for our own rescue, but seeking God Seeking him and asking of him, what do you have for us to do today? What's our mission? What's the thing that you want me to be about? Help me to see, God, what you want to do in our world and how I can be a part of what you're doing. That is the vibrancy and prayer that we long for, but there are obstacles that hinder our prayers. For some, it is an obstacle of guilt. If you're a parent, you've surely already experienced this at some point in your life. When a child knows they've done something wrong and you begin to talk to them, especially if it has anything to do with that topic of what's happened, their head goes down, they won't make eye contact. Believe it or not, I've seen it happen right here in the sanctuary before. A person struggle with something, and boy, there's just a sense of guilt. And guilt oftentimes causes a kind of separation. And we're afraid to admit to God that we've blown it. If that's something that you struggle with, here are the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah tells us, listen, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save you, nor is his ear too dull to hear. Um... Uh, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. But God is able to hear. He is able to save and he is willing to run. Remember the prodigal son story Jesus told? When his guilty son turned back toward the father, the father ran to meet him. Don't be afraid to talk to God. Don't let guilt be an obstacle to your prayer. The other thing that gets in our way is our busyness. Man, we are busy people. We we are constantly on the move. We we have so many things that we want to, to be about. And sometimes it's not that we intentionally neglect prayer or faith or conversations with God, we just got too busy. He doesn't figure into our priorities some days. The sad part is, the Bible makes it really clear that with God, we can do all kinds of things, anything's impossible, but without him, well, nothing good is really possible. The psalmist understood this, his prayer is recorded for us in Psalm 131, my heart is not Proud Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I've calmed and quieted myself. He goes on in that same song to talk about the beautiful things that God is able to do when we pause long enough to hear and to listen. I love the story about Samuel and Eli, when Samuel's a little boy staying in the tabernacle with Eli, and God speaks to Samuel at night, but Samuel is not familiar with the voice of God yet, and so he doesn't know what to do, and he goes to Eli, and he says, what do you want, Eli? You're calling me, and of course, Eli says, it's not me, Samuel. Go back to sleep, and it happens not once, not twice, but the third time, and finally the third time, Eli perceives maybe God wants to get Samuel's attention, so he says to him, hey, The next time you hear that voice say this, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Of course, God does call to him again. And because his focus is to hear God, God reveals a wonderful truth. oh a hard truth, but a wonderful one. One that made people in that time and place perk up their ears in amazement to say, God is speaking in our time. But it's not easy to calm down. What is it that makes prayers powerful? I, I, I like one of the stories that's told about one of the restoration movement ministers, uh, Thomas Campbell, from way back when, who was really trying to help create a movement in Christianity that was less about Baptists and Wesleyans and Methodists and he called people to be Christians. Let's just be Christians only. He was a man of fervent prayer. There's a story recorded where one night he couldn't sleep and uh, he, he, he heard a noise in his closet and uh, it bothered him, but he didn't know what it was. And so the story goes that that uh, he, he just began to pray, and he prayed some more, and then there was more commotion in his closet, and he prayed some more, and there was more commotion, and finally he got tired of the commotion, disrupting his prayers. So he opened the door, and at least, this is how it was reported that, that some demonic or, or devilish thing was there, and he said, "Oh, it's just you." And he went back to praying. I like the story because he was not put off even by the devil himself. What hinders your prayers? Well, sometimes it's hard for us to hear because it's hard for us to be silent. Did you know that silence uh, is what was the, the, the only time that time is measured in heaven, according to the scriptures that I can find anyway, has to do with a time for Silence. I don't know if you ever thought of this before, but in Revelation chapter 8, we read this incredible story. Uh, God is doing what God is doing. He's revealing the end of time, the final things are coming to pass. And John is watching what God is doing. Uh, John is getting the chance to have a glimpse of things in heaven. He writes about them in Revelation. And so as John watches them, he sees something happen that catches his attention, and he writes about it in Revelation chapter 8, and it's the only time that we have any, any limitation of, of physical time placed on heaven. And it says in, 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 in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, that when they opened the seventh seal, when God revealed to the crowd of heaven what was about to occur, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. A half an hour of silence. It was noteworthy. Here's John's getting all this wonderful stuff. He's writing are constantly saying, John, write this down, write this down, write this down. And now all of a sudden he comes to this moment where it's just silent. Everyone is in awe of what God is about to do. In the arena of heaven, you can hear a pin drop. God is going to do something. It's not easy to be silent. The challenge I'm about to give to you has proven daunting to me. I actually think that we, as we're going to think about what is to come, I want to issue two challenges to you, church, this week. Here's the first. You saw the names of the people or you got those people today during that greeting time. I want you to pray for that person every day this week. Pray for that family. Pray for one another. You don't have to know what their circumstance or story is. You just got to lift them up before God. And here's the second challenge that I think will prove hard for you too. During this week, I'd like for you to try to figure a time and a space where you can have 30 minutes of silence before God. No talking. (laughs) I encourage you to read a passage in Psalms and to pray. And then to sit in silence. You can meditate on the scriptures. I'm not asking for some weird out there kind of thing. Just be silent before the Lord. And for 30 minutes of time, try not to ask God for anything. And try not to talk. Just sit in silence. You might find that it's life changing. Sometimes when we give God the opportunity to speak, he speaks. Sometimes he reveals to us things we haven't thought of before. Maybe you need to be inspired to be silent. The crowd of Revelation 8 were in awe of what God was about to do. And friends, I want you to be in awe. Because... If you think what God's done in the past is exciting, get ready for what happens next. (laughs) You see, God's arm is not short. It is mighty to save. And I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but if we go through the last 2,000 years, we will find that every time there has been a calamitous event on this planet, it has been followed by a season of revival, by a season of change. And friends, I, I, I don't know if, if you think it or not, but I kind of think three million people dying from a disease is a calamitous event. And I am awaiting the arm and the movement of God. And I am in awe of what I believe God is about to do. And he will do it through you, through me. For such a time as this, we are together. This morning, as we come to the end of our, of our sermon time, I want to invite you into a, a space of prayer and reflection. As we sing our invitation hymn today, you'll have the opportunity, of course, to come forward and to give your life to Jesus if you've not done so. You'll also have an opportunity for us to seek God in prayer. If you desire to come and to pray at the front, feel free to do that. We have a special section set up in the back today. If you want someone to pray with you, you can just slide back there, and, and we have some folks that will come alongside you to pray with you back there. You can also pray right where you are. But let us seek the Lord together in this time while he can be found. As we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.